in a series for the past couple of weeks uh, where we are going through the book of Samuel. Now, we just started it. We're, we're just at the beginning edges of it. But the overall idea of the book of Samuel and our message series through it, and I'm saying book, remember, because first and second Samuel were originally one, one scroll, and so we should treat them as one book. But anyway, uh, because we are going through this study and the, and the main theme of our transition through these chapters is the theme of pursuit. Because we live in a society where everybody is searching for something. Everybody is hungry for something. We are addicted to the next thing. We are addicted to dissatisfaction. And all of us are chasing something. But the question that we need to ask ourselves is not just what are we chasing and why. There's a bigger question. Because throughout the books of First and Second Samuel, the main character of the story is someone on pursuit for us. It's God. God is chasing us. God is pursuing us. And he's particularly looking for anyone, anyone who would pursue him back. The theme verse for pretty much this entire series and both books of Samuel, I think, comes in the message God gives to one king about the next king. We've read it for the past couple of weeks. I'll put it up here on the screen again so you can see it from 1 Samuel 13. Samuel says to King Saul, your kingdom will not endure because the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him. This is God talking through Samuel to the king about the next king. The next king is going to be David, and that's this guy, the man after God's own heart. But we're talking about a man who wasn't just like God. All of us are made in God's image. We're talking about a person who was after God, who was pursuing him. And so God is seeking someone who would seek him. God is pursuing someone who would pursue him. So last week was our first week to really dig into the book. Uh, the first week I gave you kind of an overarching story of where Samuel fits into the whole Old Testament context. But last week was our first real experience digging into the books of First and Second Samuel. And so I'll give you a quick little review by reminding you of the story. So first of all, there's this woman named Hannah who can't conceive. And she seeks God and he honors her pursuit of him by granting her a son. And she promises that she will then dedicate her son to God. In fact, that's one of the places in the Bible where we get this idea of baby dedication. She was going to dedicate her son to the Lord for his entire life, and she did. And God honored her pursuit of him. But there's another fellow, a guy named Eli. And Eli has children. He has two sons, in fact. And Eli is not pursuing God, which is odd because he's the high priest. He should be the closest person in the entire country to God, and he's not even pursuing God in any way. And as a result, his children don't pursue God. And as a result, God gives a word of judgment to both Eli and his sons, a, a word of judgment that's going to go on for generations. But then we come to chapter 3, and we encounter the boy, Hannah's son, Samuel, and we see him in a couple very unique circumstances. I want to highlight for you just a few verses from 1 Samuel chapter 3. I'll put them up on the screen here. The first one, the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. Now, just to point out to you how immensely artistic the author of this book was. He does a lot of things throughout the book that I think are just cute, just cool, just interesting. For example, here is the word that there, was not, there were not many visions in the land. And the very next sentence tells us that Eli, the high priest, could barely see. It's a juxtaposition of these two concepts that we understand he's talking about divine revelation from God. That's what this vision is. But the point is that Eli, the person who's supposed to be receiving those divine revelations from God, is a man who can barely see. 
You'll see that kind of stuff show up all over the place in First and Second Samuel. It's an interesting little thing proving to us that the guy who wrote it really knew what he was doing, and he had a, a plan for how he was doing it. But we're focusing here on Samuel. Samuel exists in a world where the word of the Lord was rare. Then, the next time uh, we see Samuel engaging with the Lord, it's this. The Lord came and stood where Samuel was sleeping. Calling as at the other time, Samuel, Samuel, then Samuel said, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Eli wasn't listening to God, and Eli could barely see, but Samuel, he's listening. What's fascinating about this story is that God calls to Samuel. Samuel then goes to Eli, and he thinks that Eli's the one who's calling him, and he goes back three times, and the third time, Eli realizes it's God. And I just got to tell you, if my son had come to me, and I had concluded that the voice he was hearing was God's voice, I would not have sent him back alone. I would have totally gone back to that same place myself to be like, I want to hear the voice of God too. But Eli just goes back to sleep. He sends Samuel. But Samuel, unlike everyone else in the story in the temple area, is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, see, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. God knows there aren't many visions and there aren't many words, and so he shows up and he speaks. And Samuel is listening, and God says, now, because I have one person who's going to listen, the whole nation is going to hear. And one more thing I want to show you from chapter 3 by way of review. It says, the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. Revealed, appeared through his word, and Samuel's word came to all Israel. This is God telling us in this story that he had been silent for a long time. And it wasn't that God was silent because God decided he was just going to be silent. He was silent because no one was listening. He was silent because even the guy who was supposed to be in charge, he could barely see. He was not willing to listen either. But Samuel, when he comes on the scene, he's ready to listen. And God says, now I have someone who's going to listen, and so I will speak. We pick up the story this week in chapter 4. And in chapter 4, at the very beginning, we're reminded of this idea that Samuel is the one who is giving God's word to the people. And so I'm just going to read through it, and we're going to stop at a few strategic points along the way, and I'm going to point out some things for you in this story. Because this is a story today of the difference between those who would pursue God and those who would take advantage of him. Here we go. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now, the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. Quick comment here. A lot of times in the Old Testament, some numbers are given that are intentionally rounded numbers. Numbers like 40 years in the desert when the actual number was maybe 39 and a half. You know, it wasn't exactly to the day. And so numbers like 40 years in the desert or Jesus 40 days in the wilderness or Moses 40 days on the mountain or... any other kind of time, the number four shows up a lot with multiples of 10. And 4,000 was the number they used back in their day to say a whole heck of a lot of people. That's basically the idea. 4,000 meant a ton of people, a large number of people, a great number of people, an entire regiment of soldiers, something along those lines. So this defeat was at the level of the biggest number of people that a normal person would ever think of. 4,000 people. Might have been literally 4,000 people. Might have been just the biggest number of people that uh, were part of this battle in a group. 4,000 were killed on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Now here, I'm pausing. Because two things are happening here that I find incredibly fascinating. 
these guys ask a question, right? Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? They ask a question. Good question. We lost. God had promised us that we would have victory when we were in the promised land. So we've lost. Why have we lost? It's a good question. Questions like that you should ask as well. Why did this thing not work? Why did God not show up in the way I expected him to show up? That's a good question. The problem is they don't even try to answer it. What did we just see in verse 1? Just a few verses above it. The word of the Lord had finally come to Israel through Samuel. These guys have a question about the Lord. What are they supposed to do with their question. Well, they're supposed to go to the Lord and ask him, God, why didn't you show up the way we thought you would show up? But instead, they come up with a strategy. And their strategy is, let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us. You see what they're doing there? They're saying, God didn't go with us before. Let's manipulate him to make it happen. God likes his ark. The ark was a special box. Let's go get God's special box, the ark of the Lord's covenant. Let's get God's special box and take the special box into the battle so that God will go with us. This is manipulation, pure and simple. This is we didn't get from God what we wanted, so we will manipulate him to make it happen. I'm going to back away from Samuel for a little bit to take you into the ark stuff, the story, the, the important information about the ark. The first thing you need to know is that the ark was one of the things that God commanded on the mountain when he was giving Moses the Ten, Command, Ten Commandments and the other laws. One of the things God commanded to Moses on the mountain was to build some things. Moses was supposed to build a tent that would be a place of worship and a place of meeting where God would meet with Moses and the people could meet with God. That was the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. God also said, I want you to make a Bible. Box. And the box is going to do a couple things. First of all, it's a box of wood, and it's going to be overlaid in gold so that we know that this box is incredibly special. And this box was called the ark, not the ark that Noah sailed with his family, you know, to get away from the floods. This was a much, much smaller box. Um, but so it's a box that, I don't know, could have been like this. You might have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's that. But here it is. It's a box made of wood, covered in gold, and it had two jobs. Job number one is it was going to be a representation of God's presence in the camp. Now, God already had the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud, you know, that would lead them by day and by night. But he wanted something that was a little bit more tangible, that the people could, could see a little bit more regularly, that would stay the same all the time. And God said, Moses, make this box. And it was a box that was gold, had angels carved and set on the top of the box. And um, inside, they put the tablets of stone, plus some manna from the wilderness, and some other kind of relics that would remind them of God's presence with them in the wilderness. And that's why they called it the Ark of God's Covenant, because it was God's covenant that had kept them alive in the wilderness, God's promise to them to bring them to the promised land. But that was the first job, to be kind of a symbolic representation of God's presence in the community. It had a second job, though, also. And the ark was placed in the Holy of Holies, and the high priest, once a year, would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would take some blood, and he would put it on the cover of the ark. He would put it on the corners of the ark, and that cover was called the atonement cover. And that was the closest place anyone ever got to the earthly direct presence of God until the day that Jesus shows up. That was the holiest of holies. I've got a couple of verses here from Numbers that I want to show you. First of, this, first of them is from Numbers chapter 10. 
And it says this, So they set out from the mountain of the Lord and traveled for three days. The ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them during those three days to find them a place to rest. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. So in this case, the cloud of the Lord kind of hovers above them. The ark is on the ground leading them. And the ark is going in front of them and all the rest of them are coming up behind them. And so the ark is this symbolic place of the Lord is leading us to a place to rest. He is leading us to a place to rest. The ark was a symbol that one of these days we will be at rest in the presence of God. But let's get back to chapter 7 in Numbers, and it says this. When Moses entered the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from between the two cherubim above the atonement cover on the ark of the covenant law. In this way, the Lord spoke to him. It actually tells us how Moses heard God. God had a voice that would sound from the ark cover. And so it wasn't just that that's the place where the high priest would put the blood for the atonement once a year. It was also the place where Moses himself could directly hear the voice of God from somehow above the ark. Interestingly enough, we are told that Samuel was sleeping near the ark when he heard God call to him. And of course, as you know, Eli was not near the ark and thus never heard God speaking to him. But that's the ark in Numbers. It's the thing that leads them. And it shows up again in the book of Joshua in a very interesting way. The book of Joshua shows us that the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth, he's the Lord of all the earth, will go into the Jordan ahead of you. As they are getting ready to enter into the promised land, they are met with the river Jordan. And the river Jordan is the border between the land God had promised them and the land of the wilderness. And so they are entering into the promised land. They need to cross the Jordan. And the Jordan River is this major symbolic river of them finally getting to their place of rest, their promised land. And so the ark is going to go first. The ark is going to go ahead of you. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. This is a moment of faith for these leaders. They have to take the ark, carrying it on the carrying poles. No one touched the ark. They're carrying it into the water. And they have to be brave enough, strong enough, and they have to be men of faith so much that they will say, God is going to let us lead. God is going to empower us to lead, and he will not kill us as we enter into this water. And it tells us that as their, as their feet touched the water, that's when the waters receded, the ground became dry, and they went to the middle, stood in the middle on dry ground, while all the other people walked past. And then they, with the ark, followed the people out. But there's an interesting thing that just happens there. The ark and the priests lead into the water, but then the people cross, and the ark at that point follows them. The second time the ark shows up in the book of Joshua, it's in the back. Take a look at this. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the ark. Oh, actually, this is um, the second half of that verse. No, 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 go back to that. That was right. Take the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army advance. Advance where? Do you know what this story is? Joshua chapter six. This is the story, Joshua, in the battle of Jericho. They're standing in front of this giant city, Jericho, with these big walls. And their job, you've probably heard the story before, their job is to march around the city for seven days. And they're going to march around the city. And as they march around the city, they're just going to do nothing but, you know, march and blow trumpets and stuff. But on the seventh day, they're going to have everybody yell and God is going to make the walls fall down. That's how the story goes. And that's what actually happened. But now this is at the, near the beginning. And, and Joshua is saying to them, take the ark and have the seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. Now the army is in front and the ark 
is bringing up the rear. It's a fascinating thing. The ark was leading them all through the wilderness to find them a place of rest. They come into the promised land. It gets into the place of chaos first, turns it into a place of rest. Everybody else walks across, and then the ark follows. And from that point on, the ark is behind them. They are marching around the city with the army in the front, and the ark is now in the back. And they win this victory. But what's fascinating is their second battle, they lose. This is what the story says. Let's skip ahead to that. So Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, get this, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we'd been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Joshua says, why God? And the Lord answers, said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen, they have lied, and they have put them with their own possessions. They've taken something that belonged to God and treated it like it was their own. They've taken something that belongs to God, treated it like it was their own. They have stolen, they have lied, they have violated the covenant. Joshua, that is why you lost. Joshua, that is the answer. You came to the ark for the answer. You asked me the question. You got the answer. That's the problem. The problem is sin. And guess what happens next? They deal with the sin, they go back and they win. They defeat the Amorites. They win that next battle. But guess what? The ark is not mentioned at all in that battle or ever again in the book of Joshua. The next time we hear the word ark in the Old Testament is in Judges chapter 20. And in Judges chapter 20, it's people who are seeking God to find out whether or not they should go into battle or whether they should let a thing just go. They're saying, God, should we fight or should we not? And so they go to the ark for the answer. And the next time we hear about the ark is 1 Samuel chapter 3, when a little boy is sleeping next to it. But we are now in chapter 4. And these people have just found defeat in battle. And they say, why have we lost this battle? And their answer is, I know, let's go take the ark and use that to convince God to fight with us. Hopefully by all of that background, you know this is not going to work out very well for them. It's one of the worst decisions the people of Israel ever made. (laughs) They've made a lot of bad ones. Here it is, verse 4. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. Just the way the author puts that. the, The ark of the Lord Almighty, who is sitting there, right there. He's enthroned right there between the cherubim. That's where his voice speaks to people. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Not only does Eli allow them to steal the Ark from Shiloh, not only do Hophni and Phinehas allow them to steal the Ark from Shiloh, but Hophni and Phinehas go with it into the battle. When the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? Because they're all excited. We got God on our side now because we got his box. Anyway, when they heard, when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. How terrible of a people in worship do you have to be for the enemies to not even know that you only have one God or supposed to only have 
one. We'll come back to that in a little bit. They're the gods who struck the Egyptians. Be strong, Philistines. Be men or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought. And the Israelites were defeated and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. I'm going to keep reading the rest of the story. Just follow along as tragic as it is. That same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart feared for the ark of God, but not feared enough to keep it in Shiloh. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, what's the meaning of this uproar? The man, he doesn't even tell Eli first for crying out loud. Anyway, the man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. Um, What is he doing sitting on a chair, supposedly, quote unquote, watching if he can't even see. I I don't get this guy. He told Eli, I've just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, what happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died for he was an old man and he was heavy. He had led Israel 40 years. Some fat man fell off his chair, broke his own neck. And I don't even know if it was because his sons were dead or because the ark was captured. I don't even know which one was more painful to him, but I know one thing. I know why he was fat. It's because for 40 years, He had led Israel in a way where he and his family and his sons took advantage of the worshipers around them and stole from the sacrifice itself so they could have whatever choice parts of the sacrifice they wanted. We learned that last week. His fat was actually closely tied with his sin. And it gets worse. I don't know about worse, but it's still bad. Verse 19, his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the women attending her said, don't despair, you've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, which means she gave the boy the name before she actually gave birth to him because she knew probably she was going to die. But look at this name. She named the boy Ichabod saying, the glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. I just want to ask you a question. What kind of God do you believe in? Do you believe in a God who would invite you to come to Him and spend time with Him in His presence? A God you could ask a question to and He would give you an answer. Do you believe in a God where you approach Him and He meets you there? Or do you believe in a God that you can drag with you wherever you want to go? And maybe end up losing him. Do you believe in a God that you can manipulate to do your thing? And then maybe someone else is going to take him away from you. Do you believe in a God that you can literally fit in a box? Because they did. They believed that somehow a magic box would give them victory over their enemies. And when the box was gone, the conclusion was, well, God's gone too. Well, they're partially right. They're partially right in this sense. God does not belong to you. This is an important principle. 
God doesn't belong to you. He doesn't belong to me. He doesn't belong to Christians. He doesn't belong to non-Christians. He doesn't belong to Jews. He doesn't belong to Muslims. God does not belong to any of us. And God does not belong to all of us. God is not owned by or possessed by anyone. God is not now under the control of the Philistines. God is not now under the control of the Israelites. He never has been. God does not belong to you. You can't carry a box of God around with you and get him to follow you into your stuff. You can't get God to do what only God can do exactly the way you want him to. Which leads us to the next chapter. Because in the next chapter, we find that not even the Philistines can control this God in a box either. One of my favorite Sunday school stories of all time is chapter 5. Here we go. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. This is amazing. These are people who, A, don't believe their own God well enough to make their God be the only God in their temple. They're so happy that they just captured the defeated God from the Israelites that they bring him in the box, the ark, into the same temple as their God and put it next to their God. I don't even understand this. I mean, clearly the gold box probably looked better than their statue to Dagon. I don't know. But just the idea of not trusting your own God well enough to keep him by himself, instead bringing in this other box of God and putting it next to him, that whole part of the story just absolutely makes me want to laugh. But it gets so much better. Here it is. Then... Verse 3, when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. I just love this detail. Like their statue is worshiping the one true God. Their statue is kneeling down in front of the ark. Their statue is fallen on his face just like, if you remember, Joshua had done. Fallen on his face before the ark of the Lord. Well, what do you do when your statue falls down? Well, you do what you always do. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. Because the God you really want is a God you can put in his place. Think about that. Anyway, let's move on. Verse uh, 4. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Again, but this time it's better. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. They want to honor their stupid pile of rubble. And so they don't step on the threshold because, oh, remember, that threshold is where his head lay when we had the ark of God there. And so we're not stepping on the threshold because the threshold is now somehow holy because our God's head fell off and landed there. The ludicrous nature of how we all feel about our gods. The ludicrous way we prop them up the ludicrous way we see them fail and yet give them another shot. And the amazing way that we are willing to put our trust and our faith in someone other than God himself. Even putting our trust and our faith in a golden box. Keep reading. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought them devastation. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of God of Israel, and by the way, sometime this week, read the footnotes on these. I don't have time today, but they're amazing. Anyway, the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and with Dagon, our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath? So they moved the ark of God of the ark 
they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they'd moved it, the Lord's hand was great against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent, an, sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark, was, as the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they've brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. Here is the point of this chapter. You ready? You cannot control God. Like you just can't. You think God is this God in a box, and so you bring him, and you're, you, he's, you, he's one of your new treasures, and you put him next to your previous gods, and your previous gods fail you, but you prop him back up. But you've got this cool little trinket, this cool treasure, until finally you realize this one's not working for you either, and so you're going to move it along to someone else. And so you pass this one on to someone else, and it doesn't work out for them either, and so then they pass it along to someone else, and finally everybody's like, we want nothing to do with this God in a box. You can't control him. You can't own him, he doesn't belong to you, and you can't control him. So what do you do? Well, they decide finally to just send him back. But it's amazing how many times we try to say, God, you have to be on my side. Chapter 6, verse 1, when the ark of the Lord had been in the Philistine territory seven months, they put up with this this stuff for seven months. The Philistines called for priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, if you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it back to him without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. I'm going to skip around a little bit here. And so at the end of this one, we're going to skip ahead to verse seven, where it says this. Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows, two cows that have calved, that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart. And in a chest beside it, put the gold objects you're sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory towards Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. Here's their strategy, okay? They say, put some cows who've never been yoked, so they don't know what it's like to be yoked. And they say, put these cows that have never been yoked to pull this cart. And if these two cows that have never been yoked mysteriously and magically go in the same direction to the land, then we will know it really was God. But if they do the thing that cows always do where they're just going to wander around or maybe just chew stuff and and not ever go anywhere, well, then we know it wasn't really the box and we can get our gold stuff back. Keep going. It says, but if it does not, then we will know it was not his hand that struck us but that it happened to us by chance. But they do this thing, and then the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. And these guys are like, okay, now we got our proof. It really was the God of Israel who had done all this to us. But where the story gets really good is what happens next they followed all the way up to beth shemesh i'm going to skip ahead to verse 19 but god struck down some of the inhabitants of beth shemesh putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the lord the people mourned because of the heavy blow the lord had dealt them and the people of beth shemesh asked Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Beth Shemesh, these are Israelite people. And they die too. Because they're like, I want to see what's in this box. Is God really in the box? Are the Ten Commandments in the box? What's in the box? 
They open it up. Incidentally, I'm pretty sure this is where the whole story for Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, came from. I'm pretty sure it's right here. You know, they looked in the box, and so they died. But anyway, read your history, folks, and don't look in boxes. Anyway, that's like, I guess, the clue. But here's the deal. God cannot be owned. God cannot be controlled. You cannot inspect him and see if he meets your standards. Keep going. Then they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, the Philistines have returned the Ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. Again, someone else, take it away from us. Take it to your town. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the Ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to guard the Ark of the Lord. The Ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. And now, did you notice, Samuel just spoke. At the very beginning of this whole ordeal, we find out that the word of the Lord had come to Samuel and had come to all Israel through Samuel. Now, the word of the Lord is back in Israel. Problem. We had a battle. We lost the battle. We have a question. Why did the Lord let this happen? God's word is available now. They say, why did this happen? Um, let's make up our own solution. Let's manipulate God. Let's control God. Let's put him in a box and carry him around with us. And the whole time, they could have just said, Samuel, why did we lose? And Samuel says it right here. This is the issue. This is the deal. Samuel says, it's because you've been worshiping all these other gods. And just think about this. I'm so almost angered by this. They literally took the ark of God into the dangers of battle and they left all of their Baal idols at home. They literally were asking God to risk himself so that they could maintain their worship to these other things. You don't own God. He doesn't belong to you. And you can't control God. But, as we see with Samuel, you can seek him. Samuel said the problem wasn't that you were carrying the wrong things into battle. The problem is that you were having the wrong gods at home. The problem wasn't that you needed to get God to go with you into battle. The problem was that you weren't seeking him at home. See, you, God doesn't belong to you and you can't control him. But the thing you can do is seek him. And so they do. They turn back to God and look what happens here in verse 5. Then Samuel said, assemble all Israel at Mizpah and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day, they fasted, and there they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. But they said to Samuel, do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of of the Philistines. Before, they were trying to manipulate God by carrying God's box into battle. Now, they're like, no, we're not going to manipulate God. We're just going to ask him. Samuel, we're going to fight. You keep praying. Samuel, you just keep praying. We'll do what we can, but you just keep praying. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. You notice they don't have the ark with them? The ark is over at Kiriath-Jerim. There's nothing magical about the ark. What they wanted, what God wanted, was for people to seek him. 
Keep going, verse 10. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day, the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below Bethkar. Now, I understand that these concepts of battle and slaughter are very difficult for our modern ears to hear and to handle. But I want to just simply leave you with this idea that warfare is never the way you want it to work. And when you have been attacked, the way you respond is never always ideal. But I will say this. I'm just going to trust God for how he did things in that day because I wasn't there and I don't have the opportunity to ask God the details of all those morality things. But I know this. I know this. When they were not seeking God, they were killed mercilessly. But when they sought God, they achieved victory. And it's amazing. They say, Samuel, you pray, and the end result is that God does the work. They're ready to go to battle, but God shows up. God showed up in such a powerful way that the Philistines just started running, and they end up losing the battle simply because they're on their way out, terrified, confused. God doesn't belong to you. You can't control him, but you can seek him. And when you do, he will show up. The promise of this story, the promise of the Old Testament, I think is a promise that's been true for a very, very long time. Those who seek God, find him. Those who ask, receive. Those who pursue first his kingdom and his righteousness will be given all these other things as well. The story of Samuel is not a story of finding the right box or, or getting the right, you know, God arrangement. It's just seeking him. Here's the epilogue. It picks up in verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped me. Ebenezer is a Hebrew word that literally means effectively stone of help, or a stone that symbolizes help. Earlier on in these chapters, they used the word Ebenezer, and now we know how it got its name. Ebenezer saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel. And Israel delivered the neighboring territories from the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Amorites, the same people that they had lost against when Joshua fell before the ark of God. Just an interesting story. Move on. Samuel continued as leaders, as Israel's leader, all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was, where his mom and dad were. And there he also held court for Israel, and he built an altar there to the Lord. Here is the deal. We are always tempted to think that God is our God. Christians today especially, they think that God is our God. He's put us in this country because he likes us best. He's given us the privileges that he's given us because we're somehow better than other people. We're the chosen people. In fact, a lot of Christians sort of feel like God is on their side so they can do whatever they want to do and God has to show up for them. They will do all kinds of plans and strategies and say, well, we're working for the Lord. But what that really means is we're doing our own thing and we just claim that God God is going to be along for the ride. But here's the deal. You don't own him. God doesn't belong to you or to me. None of us can claim that we've got the corner on the God market. Number two, you can't control him. Sometimes he's going to do a thing that you don't understand and you don't like. Sometimes you're going to go to battle and you're going to lose 
Sometimes you're going to face some kind of hardship. And it's going to be like, why is this happening to me? And you're going to be tempted. You're going to be tempted. Should I manipulate God? Should I manipulate the situation? What is the thing that I did wrong that I need to get right in my life? Oh, I didn't take the ark into the, into the battle, even though no one has ever taken an ark into a battle before. We should do that because that will get God to follow us. I know I've found the strategy for how to convince God to work on my behalf. No, you don't control God. You can't control God, but... And here's the good news. You can seek him and he'll show up. The story of Samuel so far is really just a story of one guy who's willing to seek God. One guy who's willing to listen to God. But at this point, he's now stepping out. And he's the guy who doesn't just listen to God. He's not just the guy who is willing to hear from God. He's not just the guy who seeks God. He's the guy who helps others seek him too. It's what the priest was supposed to be, but he failed. It's what Samuel is doing now, pointing other people to God. So as you enter this week, I want you to take this mindset, the mindset that God is ready to meet you in the midst of your circumstances, but he's not going to show up through your own manipulation, and he's not going to show up just because he has to, because he belongs to you. He's going to show up when you seek him. He's going to show up when you reach out to him. He's going to show up when you say, God, your will be done, not my will. He's going to show up when you say, God, your kingdom first, not my kingdom. He's going to show up when you say, God, you, not me. And when you seek him, pursue him, and cast aside all all these other things, all you got to do, baby, is pray and let him fight the battle. And then look to someone around you and help them do the same. Help them set aside all of their false gods and ideas of God and help them pursue the God who will show up when you seek him. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you Live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.